This morning we turn our attention to Psalm 96, and I've entitled the sermon, O Worship the Lord. We're in these psalms that are just radiating with joyful calls to worship, and how important it is for us to receive that call and to prepare our hearts, and maybe to remind our hearts to come to worship the Lord with joy, with passion. Uh, we come week after week, and like anything you do weekly, there's always the chance for dullness uh, to set in, for uh, repetition to breed, not contempt, but dryness. And then you read these psalms, and they call us to worship with exuberance and with joy. <clears throat> and I remind you that joy and happiness are not quite the same thing. Joy is an inner radiance, an inner peace and uh, contentment, satisfaction and delight, which one can have even in the midst of trouble. It's not meant to whitewash all the troubles of the world, but it is something that is to radiate out of us and even to color our times of discomfort and trouble. Well, this morning we come to Psalm 96, and I want us to think about our worship this morning. We heard in our New Testament reading uh, from John that when John meets the Samaritan woman there, she is uh, trying to distract, of course, Jesus from his, his uh, perceptive questions and statements. Jesus cuts right through uh, her, her story and says, I know you have no husband. You've had five and the one you're with now is your husband. She immediately says, I, I perceive you're a prophet. And then, she, and then she launches into some theological question about where we should worship. And that's called, that's called distraction. That's called, I don't like you probing around my five husband story. Uh, let's talk about where we should worship. <laughs> um, and Jesus goes there. Jesus goes there. He knows he's left his, he's left his mark. He he, uh, he, he, he got through. But he does then turn with her and go to this business of worship. And the day is coming where you will neither worship on this mountain or that mountain. And this links us back to what we looked at in Hebrews 12 as our word of exhortation today, that we have come to the mountain of mountains. Uh, here we are. While all Old Testament worship was valid and sincere, it was contained and centered around these typological shadowy places and buildings and altars and rituals. But all of those things were preparing the people of God. They were wearing a path, if you will, in the souls and the psyches of the people of God to train them to come to the mountain of mountains. And that is Mount Zion, to that description in Hebrews 12 where we come before the Lord God himself whether we meet here at affirmation or some other building or out in a park or wherever we are what we're doing as we gather for worship is we are coming before the holy God of the universe the one who created all things and it's good for us to reflect on what we're doing as we gather here this morning so I want us to just contemplate four aspects of our worship this morning using the very simple kind of uh, um, uh, introductory questions like who, what, when, where, why, how, those kinds of questions, and let the text speak back to us about our worship. So first, the what of worship that we have at least in our text, because this text is filled with what we call imperatives, commands, not just descriptions of worship, but you will notice in this text that it, it is like this rapid fire commands to do things 
in our text. Notice how it begins. There, I think if you look, if I'm correct, there are 10 commands in this text to do, and then several of those are repeated, particularly sing and give or ascribe in, in another translation. So 14 times we're commanded to things in the text, but 10 different commands. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim the good news of salvation from day to day. To, from day, to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all the people. Verse 7, give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Here we have this imperative to worship. Right, Worship is not just something we come up with to do thinking, oh, well, God is worthy. Let's figure out something to do. No, we are commanded to do what we're doing here today. Now, we're to come and to do it joyfully, but nonetheless, there is an imperative here to worship. Notice we are to sing. We are to sing. We are to sing. Indeed, three times the psalm begins reminding us to sing, and I've, I've, I've patted you on the back from the pulpit before, but I love the fact that we are, though small in number, a singing church. Shame on churches that mumble through their songs, that sing tepidly, right? We are to be a singing congregation, one, because it's appropriate, but two, because God commands it, right? Christian churches sing. It's what we do. We take the, the truth of God. It's interesting that we don't just say it, though, again, we're going to be told in here to say it and to declare it. But something else is happening when you're singing. It's like you're taking the truth and you are proclaiming it, but in a way of beauty. It's saturated with beauty and timing and harmony and melody. It's like these things are worth saying, but they're also worthy of singing. That is, they're worth proclaiming beautifully. We rejoice in them. Singing doesn't just stir the mind, though it ought to do that, but it stirs the heart, right? It's like poetry, but it's even greater than poetry. It's poetry with tune and melody, and it's taking then the truth of God, and it's like, what can we do with it? You know, what, what, what the, the truth of God is so rich. I think this is why singing is commanded because it is the appropriate outlet for the content. The truth of God and of the scripture is so rich. It requires more than what I'm doing. It requires more than just saying it. It requires it to be put into poetic form. Poetry is like, poetry is, is I, I, I told my students the other day, that poetry is like, uh, like maple syrup. It, it, it takes maple sap. You know, maple syrup, I know this because of Mike Stelluti. It makes me miss Mike Stelluti right now talking about this. But Mike, I remember Mike, you remember he did the maple syrup. He did all kinds of things. But one of the things he did was maple syrup. For those of you who don't know, the Stelutis were a, uh, a family at this church for many years. And, and Mike was the one who told me, Bill, doing maple syrup is tough. It requires 40 gallons of sap to get one gallon of syrup. It's 40 to 1 reduction. And here we take all the words that are spoken, right? And what poetry does is it cooks it down. 
and when you when you take maple syrup, you know you can't you can't just guzzle down maple syrup. I guess I suppose you could guzzle down uh, uh, maple sap. It's it's pretty watery, but you know we can do that. But we can't guzzle down maple syrup. It's too condensed. It's too rich, and poetry is like that. Is taking truth and then compressing it down and making it something very deep and rich, and then music takes that up a notch. Right, it takes that and and ramps it up by putting tune and melody to it, and that it's like yes, it's we're compelled to do that with the truth of the scriptures, because it is so rich that singing is appropriate. So three times here we are commanded to sing to the Lord, and notice we're to sing to the Lord a new song, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't shouldn't sing old songs, but it means that we sing them new. We come to worship. As new people, really, every week we come. You know, the great uh, Greek philosopher Heraclitus said, you never step in the same river twice. That's true. You, you never read, you know, when we read the Bible, it's why we read the Bible over and over and over again. Because as I come to step in the river, the water has moved and I'm a different person now. The context is different. And you know this as well as I do. When you read the scriptures, how many times have you had it where you read the scriptures and you say, I never saw that in there? Or... Oh, I, I can't believe this point that just punctured my heart had never done that before. I've been a Christian a long time. I've heard these texts preach a long time. Yeah, but you're not the same person you were yesterday. You're not the same person you were when you heard the text before. You've had new experiences, new thoughts, new troubles, where you're aware of new things. And so we come back to the text of God's word and it speaks to us fresh. And that's why we sing it again. And it's a new song when we sing it. And of course, we should be writing new songs. Praise God for uh, 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 Christian artists who are trying to put words to new tunes and write new words uh, freshly done. But even when we sing the Psalms, we're singing a new song in as much as we offer it to the Lord in a new context. But again, this is what the people of God do, right? Think of Moses when he came through the Red Sea and he gets out the other side. The, the, the horse and the chariot are washing up on the shore. And Moses leads the people of God in singing a new song unto the Lord, seeing his works of deliverance on our behalf. We sing to the Lord a new song. We sing to the Lord and bless his name. We're to proclaim, uh, end of verse one, proclaim the good news and to declare his glory among the nations. Of course, this is something we're to do in the week and proclaiming it when we talk about it with our neighbors, right? We carry our joy that we have in here, our refreshment in this building. We carry it out to our workplace and to our families that we might proclaim it and declare it. But it's also something we do in worship. Like the, the, the participation that we have in worship as after the service, we say the creed together. That is in, in many ways a fulfillment of this. What are we doing when we say the creed? We're not just going through, well, that's what's in the bulletin. I guess it's what we have to do. No, that's our chance as a congregation to proclaim, yes, I believe these things about my God. When we say the Sursum Corda and we lift up our hearts and we give thanks to God, we are proclaiming together that which we believe about the glory and the goodness of our God. Verse 7, we are to give or to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Right? Not only do we proclaim to one another and to the world what we believe, but we are to proclaim things back to God. Right? We come here to give 
and we come to receive. This text doesn't talk about the receiving, but we most certainly do, right? We don't come here simply to give. We come to worship to receive, right? We, that's what you're getting right now. Through my preaching and through the reading of God's word, we are receiving from the Lord. You've received the assurance of pardon as we confessed our sins. So we do come to receive, but this text is talking about what we give and what we are to give is glory to the Lord. We are to give praise to God and we do that in our prayers, but especially we do that in our corporate singing. As we ascribe, we declare God, we declare back to God the truth about God. We declare to him the glory of his name. So give to the Lord. Again, another three-time repetition, a command to do this. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory to his name. And then next, bring. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Again, hear all the elements of our worship as we come and bring an offering to him. Now, again, we're not, we, we don't worship, our God is not like the pagan gods who is empty and needs to be filled. Our, our God doesn't need to be fed the fat of lambs and the, the blood of bulls and goats, nor is he poor and he needs us to give him, you know, a, an outreach offering as we drop our money in the plate. That's not what's going on. And you hear that in the way that I pray after we give our offering. But we don't give because God needs. We give because he's worthy and we give because we need We need to give. We need to give so that we remind ourselves that he is worthy and that he is sufficient. The reason you bring an offering is because what you bring is not yours. And what you're doing as you bring an offering to him is you're laying back before him a portion of that which is his and that he has given to you. And it's an important reminder that it is not yours. You're not doing God favors when you give an offering and put it in the plate. You are acknowledging, Lord, all I have is yours. That's what you're saying when you lay that offering in the plate or in whatever you do when you bring any other offering, an offering of praise, or when you, when you come and contribute, as we, as we just heard in the vows with uh, Tim and, and Jack and Linda, right? When we, we work to support the church in its work and its worship, that when we bring an offering to the church of service, help, diaconal service, whatever it might be, when we do these things, we're offering up to the Lord that which is already his, our time, our gifts and abilities. I didn't come up with these. The Lord gave me whatever gifts and abilities I have. He gave you yours. And we bring them back in service to the Lord. We're commanded to do it. Bring an offering and come into his courts and then worship him in the beauty of holiness. So the first thing we need to remind ourselves is that we are commanded to do these things. And the elements of our worship in our bulletin are those things which we are doing to be consistent and which the tradition of our church has done to be consistent with commands such as these. So first, the imperative of worship. And then secondly, the not the cause, the reason. I don't even like saying that again because it feels instinctive to do this just because of the nature of who God is. And that's what we have in this text. Why do we worship? Well, like the Psalms we've looked at before in verse 4, verses 4 through 6, we get the why. And it comes in verse four with four. So why do we sing, 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 proclaim and declare, ascribe and give and bring and worship? Well, verse four, 
For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. The first reason why we are to worship is because of the very nature of God. And here's something I think we have to reckon with as a people, not just as affirmation, but I think as just modern Christians. We have way too small a view of God. We have way too small a view. We know he's great. We say things like that. But we have, we need, and I need, let's put it that way. I have too small a view of God. And we look in the scriptures at those who have encountered him. And again, they fall on their faces as if dead. You know, Thomas Aquinas, the great uh, teacher of the church in the 13th century, you know, he wrote voluminously, right? He, he wrote the Summa Contra Gentiles, which was like an apologetic to his Muslim friends, trying to argue for the truth of Christianity. Volumes. Then he turned and he put his hand to writing the Summa Theologica, the, the summary of theology, in which he tried to tackle the beliefs of the Christian faith question by question by question, wrestling with some of the great questions of the universe and reasoning them out with logic and with scripture. He's working through this. He is, he is one of the great minds of the Christian church. And then he stopped on a dime. He, he does not finish his summa. He stops. And somebody else later has to finish it. And the reason he stops, now again, I, I, I don't know what happened, and I'm not trying to uh, draw a theology of encounters with God, but Thomas Aquinas says he was in church and he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that he had never encountered him before whether it was a vision, whether it was just a clarity of thought regarding the greatness of God. And Thomas Aquinas said, I am nothing. Everything I have done, he said, is straw. Like he, he looked at, the, the, the Summa Theologica is one of the great works of Christian theology, right, in the history of the church. And he looks back at, I don't know what his view of his own work was. I'm sure he already had humility. But he looks back at what the best he can do. And he says, like Paul, it's rubbish. I've seen God. I, I've, I've encountered the living God. And in light of the living God, all the best I can do, the most I can give is straw. Now, that's not an argument for not doing stuff and serving and doing the best we can. Of course, we ought to do these things. But the point is, do we think of God the way that Aquinas describes God? Do we, do we understand God the way that the prophet Isaiah understood God? Who, again, falls on his face and basically calls himself straw. Rubbish. I am a man of unclean lips. Our view of God is so small. But here, the psalmist, do you know why you should sing and why you should praise and why you should be ready to be here or wherever you will be in church on a Sunday morning? For the Lord is great. 
and greatly to be praised. Great praise is appropriate for him because he is a great God. He is the God that the angels, the perfect, sinless angels, have to cover their eyes before as they fly around him because they cannot gaze in the brightness of his holiness. He is the God seated in the center of all cosmic worship that when the 24 elders hear the voice of the angels praising him, they fall on their faces before God. May we pray not not to have visions, though if the Lord grants them, so be it. But may we pray for clarity of mind. We are so deluded in our post-enlightenment world. God has been so reduced to this deistic watchmaker in the sky, the God of nature's laws, which he is. But we have, we have lost something in the transcendence and the greatness and the glory of God. Why ought we to worship? Why should our singing be robust? Why should our confession be sincere? Why should, when I give you the assurance of pardon, should it move your heart? Because God is holy. And he is a great God. And he is greatly to be praised. Secondly, because everything else is idols. (laughs) Everything else is idolatry. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. We talked about this last week. Don't don't say there are no other gods. There most certainly are gods. I mean, we're not polytheistic people. There's only one true God, but there are many gods and so-called gods, Paul says. We make gods out of everything. For all the gods of the people are idols, but it is the Lord that made the heavens. We're going to get to Psalm 115. Oh, no, we're not getting to Psalm 115. We will. We've read Psalm 115, right? Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name be praised. For all the other gods are idols, and then he kind of rips down what the idols are, right? They have ears, but they cannot hear. Eyes, but they cannot see. Hands, but they cannot act. Feet, but they cannot walk. And all who worship them become like them. They are futile. They can do nothing for you, and in the end, they destroy you. And we make idols out of everything. We feel pompous as 21st century Americans because we don't worship totem poles and stone statues, right? We're so much more mature than that. But instead, we worship the things that those totem poles represented. We've just gotten rid of the material stuff and we just worship the gods of money or power or beauty or success or whatever, comfort and convenience, right? These things become our gods. But they're all idols, They're all creatures. They're all gifts from God that we try to sever from the gift giver and then take and run away with ourselves. They're all flowers and we cut them from their roots and think we can hold on to them and preserve them. And you can't, they die. All these things are idols, but God alone is the true God. What a privilege it is to worship him. We worship him because he is worthy in his nature. We worship him because everything else is an idol. It's futile. And then thirdly, we worship him because he is coming to judge the world. Jumping all the way down to verse 13. For he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and all the peoples with his truth. 
He is the judge of heaven and earth, and it is right that we come before him and be right with him and ascribe to him the praise due his name. So what do we do? Well, we had or 10 commands of what to do. We sing and give and bring and worship and tremble. And why do we do it? Because he is the one great God. Thirdly, how do we do it? Well, here we have in verse 9. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness or in holy array, right? In the wardrobe of holiness. So two things, and this isn't all that's to be said about worship, but the two things that this psalm tells us to do in worshiping in terms of how we're to worship, we're to worship him in holy array, in the beauty of holiness is how the New King James translates it, and we're to worship him with trembling. We're to worship him with trembling. We worship him with trembling because, as we read in Hebrews 12, he is a consuming fire, and we ought never forget it. Again, Isaiah calls, he, he thinks he's damned, right? He, call, he, he, he says, I, woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean. I'm done, I'm finished, I'm undone. We worship the God who is a consuming fire with trembling. It's not a slavish fear, but it is with awe and reverence. He is the one true great God, and we ought to come before him with trembling. I, I, I have to find where. I just remember hearing it in seminary, so I hope it is true. I have to go find where Calvin said it, but I remember being told in seminary that Calvin said that anything that makes us feel comfortable in worship we ought to be suspicious of. Like, how can you feel comfortable in the presence of the transcendent holy God? And if we do, then it doesn't it only make us reflect on the fact that perhaps we're not thinking of him as he ought to be thought of. We are to come before him with trembling. Again, I don't mean that we're to be like slavish fear because as Paul tells us, you are not redeemed unto a spirit of slavery, but a spirit of sonship, right? You're a child of God. But nonetheless, he is our father. But he's our father who art in heaven, whose name is hallowed. And we are to come before him with trembling. But also we're to come before him in the beauty of holy array. That is in the proper clothes. And we know this matters because of that one little parable where Jesus tells the parable, the wedding banquet. Do you remember this parable? And go out and tell the invited guests that the bridegroom has come. It's time for the wedding. And remember, they don't want to come and they beat up the messengers and the messengers come bedraggled, straggling back to the, to the king. And they, they say, and he's like, where, where is everybody? And why are you all beat up like this? And they said, well, we, we told them and, and they beat us up. And he says, all right, go destroy their cities. Now, go out into the highways and the byways and bring whoever will come. And so they do, and they, they bring them in, and the wedding happens, and it's a great party. And then we're told at the end of this parable, it's this odd little tack on, that there's a guy in the wedding party who's not in the right wedding clothes. And the master of the party finds him and says, sir, what are you doing here? Who let you in here? And then he is cast out. They tell him, get this guy and cast him out of the party. We must come to worship in the proper clothes. And of course, here I'm speaking about spiritual clothes. In the Old Testament, when they were reading this, it was physical clothes because we're dealing with the shadows. The priest was to come in white robes. He was to be uh, uh, ceremonially cleansed and he was to have his proper clothes on. But those proper clothes were a picture of the robes in which we must be arrayed in today if we are to worship properly. 
And that is, of course, the robe of Christ and his righteousness. We are told by Paul in Galatians 3 that if we've been baptized into Christ, we have been clothed in his righteousness. And we hear Paul to the Romans in Romans 13 telling us, clothe yourselves in Christ. If we are not properly clothed, we are not allowed in the temple. We are not allowed to worship. We are to come with trembling, but we are to come in the beauty of holy dress. And the holy dress that is non-negotiable, must be worn, is the robes of Christ's righteousness. And it's because we are robed in those then that we may come with joyful trembling, boldly before his throne of grace. Those clothes... And those clothes alone give you access to his holy throne, to that Mount Zion before which we come to worship in Hebrews chapter 12. So how do we worship? We worship properly dressed in the righteousness of Christ, and we worship with appropriate trembling. Now, finally, who is to worship? It's interesting that this psalm begins, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. That is, the worship of the one triune God is not just sort of an in-house kind of cliquish thing. It's a niche thing. It's kind of what we like to do. And the rest of the world, well, you all do your thing. The command of this psalm is a global and cosmic psalm. Cosmic imperative. Sing to the Lord, the great God, who is greatly to be praised. Sing to him all the earth. In verse 7, give to the Lord, O families of the peoples, all the nations, all the earth are commanded to give this worship and commanded to be in their proper dress. Again, this is not a club that we're in. And this is our club, and they have their club. No, we believe that what we're doing here is worshiping the one true God of creation and that all peoples of all the earth are commanded to bow their knee before this one true and great God. The day is coming, we're told, when every knee will bow. Every knee, not just within the club here, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Notice and rejoice in the cosmic nature of this psalm. All the earth is to worship the Lord. And we are to declare his praise to who? To one another? No, declare it to all nations, to all the peoples. Say to them, verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Declare this. Notice this psalm, and and I think this affects our evangelism as well, that when we go out of here, notice what you're called to do. You're just called to declare. I'm not called to convince. I'm not called to persuade. Now, it's nice if I can persuade. I would like to be able to convince. I'll make arguments, but that's not what you're called to do. What you're called to do is proclaim. You are called to declare. You are, you are called to go tell the nations a truth. And you know what the truth is? Our God reigns. He is the true God who sits above heaven and earth and reigns upon his throne. That's what you're called to declare. It's interesting. Even in the Great Commission, which we use as our the, the imperative to go spread the gospel, it is, but go back and listen to it. 
Go ye therefore into all nations, making disciples. Right? Baptizing in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. Right? You go out and you declare something to them. You tell them a truth and tell them there is only one name given under heaven and earth by which men must be saved. Like this is a command. And we don't do that with arrogance. We do it with humility. We do it with love, but we do it with confidence. It's a declaration. All the nations need to hear it. Your coworkers, your family members, your friends need to hear it. They need to hear the day is coming when the Lord will come and he will judge the, wor the world in righteousness. He will judge it in equity. We will all stand before him and be judged in truth. We live in a world of spin. We're all bemoaning the fact that we don't know what to believe about anything anymore. Who am I to listen to? Where is the authority? I don't know. But here's what I do know. The day is coming when all will be made clear. And on that day, we will be judged and all things will be judged in truth. And there will be no more spin. There will be no more covering things up. Everything will be judged in truth and we need to declare it. And just as an aside, and I know I'm going long, so I, but just as an aside, again, given what we were saying in our prayer concerns this morning about the shakeability of the world, thinking in Hebrews 12 that everything will be shaken and only that which is unshaken will remain, namely the kingdom of God. And listen to the relation between Hebrews 12 and this again. Say among the nations, verse 10, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. Like this has to be our confidence, right? In a world that feels like shifting sand constantly under our feet. There's so many uncertainties, right? We're worried about this. We're worried about that. All the, all the regulations and mandates and, and problems and sicknesses and all these kinds of things. And all the questions that hang over our head in this moment. And of course, every generation has had to deal with their problems. Well, we live in a world that is firmly established. It will not be moved. Like, we, we have our feet firmly established on something solid. Our God is the God who is sovereignly governing over all of this. He will set it right. That's our confidence. That's why we can be at peace, even in the midst of this kind of trouble. Well, I conclude with this. The day is coming when God will do it. He will judge the earth. And I love the fact that in verses 11 and 12, the psalmist doesn't even contain his calls and his commands to us as human beings, but he recognizes that nature itself is going to burst forth into singing. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea roar and all of its fullness, right? All the fish of the sea, let the field be joyful and all that is in it, then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord because he is coming. He is coming, they know. They know, untainted by sin, they know. The fish of the sea know. The fields of the woods, uh, the, 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 the trees of the woods know. The fields and the flowers know. The animal kingdom knows that the king is coming. <laughs> and they are set to rejoice and to sing praise unto God. And as we gather Sunday after Sunday, we are a testimony to this truth. We are declaring now and rejoicing now and singing now about what we know to be true, but what might not be apparently visible 
to the world around us, but we declare even now by faith and confidence and hope what is true in our worship. So sing and praise and declare and give and bring and worship the Lord, O members of affirmation and all who gather before the one true and great God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a great God and greatly to be praised. Indeed, receive our praise for you are worthy. Fill our lips with praise that it might overflow the walls of this church and flood out into our communities, into our workplaces, our social networks. Father, may we declare among the nations that you reign, that you are sovereign, that you are coming to judge the world, that everything else is idle and it will destroy But Father, you alone have made the heaven and earth and you sustain them by the force of your will. You are the God before whom the angels cover their eyes and the 24 elders fall humbly before you. You are the God that made the great Thomas Aquinas call the best he could do, nothing but rubbish and straw. So Father, give us a vision, we pray. Open our eyes and our hearts that we might see you in your greatness of your glory. And that indeed, as we've already said last week, that the things of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.